Hello, welcome to Uppity Women, Season 1, Episode 1.1. This is actually going to be a two-parter. I spoke with my friend Andrea Zekas, who is an activist transgender woman, or as she says, she's a woman who happens to be transgender and an activist. And we had a lot to talk about, uh, and I still didn't even get to cover everything that I wanted to with her, but we spoke for almost four hours, probably three and a half hours total, and I've pared it down some, but it is a good conversation. I hope you learn some things. I know I do. I get a little lost in the LGBTQ language and how we're supposed to talk about things in a way that is respectful and honors other people's wishes in the way that we address them, identify them, etc. So anyway, I really hope you enjoy the conversation. We're sponsored today by Red Wine. I'm just kidding. We don't have sponsors, but I would like some red wine. So if there are any distributors out there who would like for me to do some taste testing, I will report back. I'll say your name on the air. I'll do whatever I need to do. So I need lots of it though, just to to be sure that I like it. Anywho, in this podcast, we are going to be putting the music of Daryl Sean under our intros and outros. And he is a friend of mine from Philadelphia. Met him through another guy at at his wedding. His music is just, it touches my soul. I love it. It makes me feel good. It means something, although I couldn't tell you what exactly, but I just really feel good when I listen to his music. You can check him out at Bandcamp, Daryl Sean, or check our show notes and there'll be information there. And the song that we have licensed from him is from his As Promised album, and it's called Oakland Azul. So I hope you'll check him out. I love him, love his music, and he's a really good person, so I am happy to be able to support him. So anyway, enjoy. Started. To, to the beginning. So is, are you recording? Yes, yes. I'm going to probably say things that aren't what I'm supposed to say, and we're friends. So can I? We can we make a teachable moment then? Yes, yes. And if there are things you don't want to talk about, I don't. I just want for people to get to know you. I think you're a really interesting person, and you. I have, think that's an understatement. It is an understatement. <laughs> I don't even know a word to describe you, but I also am not afraid to make those mistakes. So. Mm-hmm. You know, like I only learned a few years ago what a dead name is or, what you know, just things like that. But I, I want to use it as also an opportunity for listeners to learn. There's a story about that recently, too, with me, by the way. Okay. Well, do you want to yeah. tell me now or do you want to wait? Yeah, I can tell you this now. So the Clinton Foundation has a, an annual holiday party. So, and they have this so it's every year and around Christmas time. And they normally, the, I'm, a, so I'm a first year student at the, at the Clinton School of Public Service, University of Arkansas Clinton School of Public Service. And mm-hmm. um, they invite the students to come here. And for, it depends which class you're in. It's the first year that they tend to meet President Clinton. I've met him before, but the time I met President Clinton, was back in 2006. My then wife was a Clinton School student. They had um, invited us to come to an event, and there was a receiving line to go meet President Clinton, and I got to go see him. But uh, I had been I had been presenting as a man at that time. I had not yet transitioned. So fast forward to like beginning of December. This is like I first of all I didn't expect to see President Clinton there because he had been at the funeral for President George Herbert Walker Bush earlier in that day. So I wasn't expecting to see him that there that evening for the event, but fortunately, 
get there and everything has it seem like there's the there's the curtains that are up in the back and make it seem like that oh the president's here he's just taking a little rest or something like that or mm-hmm. but it's just there's all stuff that there is someone behind the curtain there and we're all there we're having drinks and things like that and now the, the dean of the Clinton School Public Service Dick Rutherford came up to me and he said you know, Andrea, there's going to be a receiving line for President Clinton. I, w- I want to prepare you for this. The last time that he remembered, the last time that the President Clinton met you, you were somebody else. And he, he so, remembered meeting you. Yeah, I said, it's, you know, you know, he the first said, it's like, yeah, I, you were somebody else last time. You need to tell President Clinton that tell him, hi, my name is such and such. You know, you know my name is Andrea Zikas. Last time you met me, I was such and such. Go on and on and on and on. Rutherford asked me to, to dead name myself, basically to, to President Clinton, so I could come out to President Clinton as a transgender woman to him. So, so it was like he was like Dean Rutherford was like some people go up to President Clinton and, and tell him this is like oh thank you so much for having me here, thank you for being at this event, you know, and then they shake his hand and they move on and the things he wanted to say they didn't get off. He says like. It's like when you talk to him, just make sure you make it very clear. It's like, President Clinton, my name is Andrew Ezekiel. The last time you met me, I was this person. I'm a transgender woman, and I'm a Clinton School student. And this is a very affirming and welcoming place for me to learn. Thank you so much. And to get it done and to talk to him about it. So the receiving line happens at this event. President Clinton comes out, speaks for a period of time talks about wonderful things about President Bush and talks about how people should be working together and people should be able to, uh, to, to find a way to compromise and settle their differences and still need to get together, get along, and we still need to do the work moving forward. And then the speech is over, and then the receiving line just happens. It just happens automatically. People know what's going to happen. And then I get into the line, and I, with these notes from Dean Rutherford, I then go into the line and wait my turn, and I go ahead and I get to the point where I'm getting to President Clinton and the lines come straight out of my mouth. This is like, hi, President Clinton. My name is Andrea Zikas. Forehand, you knew me as this person. I am a transgender woman. I'm a Clinton School student. And I thank you for making this an affirming place for me to, to, to work and to be at school. And he was just like, where are you from? And I said, like, you know, I'm, I'm from Little Rock originally. I'm not from Little Rock, but I consider this home. I'm, my parents live in the Chicago area. And he says, like, how long have you been here? And I says, like, well, I moved down here in 2005. And he looked at me and says, like, you know, that's great. And he was just so happy. He was so happy and so great. It was just so cool to be able to have my life kind of come full circle as someone who had been here in Arkansas and made this their home. Mm-hmm. And then to have just have this moment where I get to share a moment where I don't often have many people I get to come out to anymore as transgender. Most people either know I am or don't know, you know, or it doesn't necessarily matter. Right. You know, but to have someone who had known me beforehand have the president of the United States. That's amazing. To to be able to come out to and talk about this. It really made my evening and it really kind of brought everything full circle. At the time when I came out as a transgender woman here in Arkansas, I wonder how much I would have to work to become to be seen as an equal or to be seen as someone who can be respected, not just for, I mean, it's it's challenging to be seen as an equal being. You know, I I have the abilities and skills and the merits, but then to have people be able to see me and recognize me as a transgender woman and not necessarily see me as a liability or someone who should be put away or set aside, you know, but to someone who can be um, appreciated and, and supportive for who I am. I just to see that 
seen how far our country has gone between 2006 and now, and I able to have a conversation with a former president of the United States about myself as a transgender woman was rather remarkable, and to have him be affirming and supportive was remarkable to see how far we've come. In a very short time. Yeah, and I think it's kind of fun and stuff like that. There has been just moments like that in my life that are rather like start seeing how things have changed and you start seeing how society has changed and you start seeing how that... uh, I I put myself in these rather remarkable situations where it's like, wow, that's really cool that you got to do that. And there's this sense of responsibility that, you know... As a transgender woman? Yeah, that there's that there's not a lot of people who get to see someone like myself in that position, and for every other those points, I'm creating space not just for myself but for other people along the way. Mm-hmm. And that I want to see, I want to see people being celebrated for the merits of their of their work and the consciousness of their character and all the good things that they bring to that. It's just that you know, being trans is just one part of myself. And I want to bring my full self there, but I can't bring my full self unless I can bring I can bring myself to these spaces. And so I'm really appreciative of having a welcoming space and be able to talk about it. Yeah, so I want to talk about that because as human beings, we put labels on each other, right? So it's, it's how we identify with each other. You know, are you single? Are you married? Are you a parent? Are you straight? Are you transgender? All of these different things. And then... After that, then, okay, well, what do you do for a living or where did you grow up? And so there are all these different layers to people. Do you ever feel like you just want to be Andrea or you just want to be a cartographer or a grad student or something? Like, does the transgender ever feel oppressive? Or not the transgender, but the identity as a transgendered woman? I often think that there are things I have to do extra because I am. It has allowed a, me to have a perspective that I can see the world a bit differently. I've seen a lot more things in my life, and I can feel rather, I can live a very authentic life, which would be kind of liberating, but it's also scary for a lot of people. Imagine, I mean, there are things I, there are a lot of things that people just don't want to let go about themselves, but when you tell people that, when I tell people that I'm transgender, then it's almost as if, like, well, there's, there's very few things that, uh, it just seems like a lot of things are way out in the open then. You know, a lot of things that are personal, they can, ask a lot more things personally about it and I have to somewhat have my boundaries about it, you know, about what I can and can't talk about. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, it's one of the things where I always have to bring up first. It's like, you know what, I'm transgender. You know, I, I bring it up because it's like, if you're not going to want me around or appreciate me for, if you're not going to want me to be, if this is an issue, then you're not, I don't want to work for you. Or I, mm-hmm. if this is an issue, I don't want to be in your space. Or if this is an issue, then you're not going to be able to see eye to eye on you know, and unfortunately, what's been wonderful is that because I've been open about it and I don't, and it's not like I'm advertising it or anything like that. It's just this way I am that I'm able to have friends who are liberal and friends who are conservative. I'm able to have people who, you know, they get to see me and they, they kind of see me come a mile away and they still want to work with me. And they are able then to see me as, you know, I'm not shying away from it. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. I'm being very honest and forthright about it and then they're able to see me come along with it, see me that way and then, so they just have to accept me as who I am and if they don't and then it's kind of like they, they, they're the ones who have the problem <laughs> mm-hmm. so what I hear you saying is it, it's it's easier for you just to kind of let the elephant out of, out of the or yeah identify yeah. the elephant in the room or whatever and just move on from there yeah but it's also I feel like that there are times when I've actually had to work harder 
I have to have to prove myself more. Um, Tell me about that. Can you take well, an example? Was I hired because I was transgender, or was I hired because I'm the right person to do the job? Mm. Almost like and, a token tokenism. Yeah, and you don't often assume that's the case first, but then you have those moments where um, it's no longer that it's the skill that they're asking you about, but they're just asking us. So it's like, well, we have a couple of transgender people here, and it's like, well, it's no longer about that. We don't have an organizer here, or we don't have a you know, the staff member here is just like that. It's more about that that person's identity is the ones in the way or or I've had times when I had been kept out of having certain opportunities because the employer was not certain about how they would handle me being in that space. Like they've had to like they were concerned about um, you know, I've had conversations where you should be grateful that you have this job and you don't, this additional requirement of this job is not necessarily part of the, of, of the job. So right. uh, you don't have to go out and do this extra thing. It's just like, well, I want to be a team player. I want to be seen as someone who's able to go the extra mile. I want to prove myself. And I think people appreciate that. But at the same time, I think there is an additional burden to want to get along and to work with people and to make sure that it's just like that. It's not just about me, but it's also about like that person who's my supervisor, to to rest their concerns, you know, trying to overcompensate whether I'm going to, you know, if if someone's going to have an issue with me, you know, there's there's additional things to it. So it's like, and in this sense of, um, I remember having a conversation with a friend uh, who is another trans organizer who works on campaigns, and we talked about it, and uh, they informed me that when they were working on campaigns that normally they always had someone who was above them who had less experience than they did, but the only difference was that person was not transgender and was indicating to me that they didn't know of a campaign that they've experienced where they didn't know someone it, it, transphobia or fear of uh, or or some kind of uh, bias against transgender people didn't exist on that campaign. It's as if that you're the trans person, you are in this role doing this work and this lower middle level work on the campaign and that the trans person cannot be seen as someone who is higher on that campaign because they don't know if the transgender person can be respected. You know, the idea that the trans is to be you know, transgender people have a stigma attached to it or that they can be marginalized or that they someone might think that there's something wrong with them. And so it's like, then why can't you respect that person for that person? You know, the the, the, the stigma of that transgender people are, are experiencing a disorder has been, it's going away. It's gone. It's like, this is who I am. This is how, how I was born. But that stigma still exists for some people. And so people, they have a hard time just like what they would with, with sometimes with a woman, with a woman in a certain role, they may not want to see that person as a as a woman. So I understand that sometimes the treatment I receive as a transgender woman is the same that any other woman would, 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 would receive. Can that person be respecting the position of authority? Am I getting paid the same for, am I paying adequately for my experience? Am I getting paid the same for the same work? Those kinds of concerns do exist still for transgender women. Is that something you ever felt as a man? No. No, it was interesting. I had one employer where I had transitioned that on the job. And before I started, before I transitioned, I received merit pays and other things like that and was being groomed for promotion. And after I transitioned, I did not receive any merit pays increases. I only received, you know, cost of living adjustments that any of the, anybody else would receive. 
I was not being, did not receive any kind of promotion. And there was expectations for more gendered work. So like where beforehand, I was not expected to put up lights for the holiday displays, for instance, at work. I would be asked to do that afterwards. So it was expected. Because that was woman's work. That was woman's work and it was expected work. So, I mean, I saw from one end to the other end about how workplaces and dynamics and how people are being treated differently based on gender that that takes place. You know, and, and at one point there was a sense of like, oh, I'm being affirmed because I'm being treated as if I was one of the women there. But then it's also at the same time it was, wow, I'm being treated like I'm one of the women here for, and, and it's a negative thing as well. Right. Oh, my gosh. I have so many questions. Okay, so <laughs> let me go back to what you were saying, like, in the in the campaign. If you didn't do a good job or you didn't meet expectations in whatever that role was, then they would say, well, see, that's what you get for hiring a transgender person. Yeah, that does exist. Yeah, and there's two things going on here. So you would see transgender people put into roles based because they were looking for a transgender person in that role. So you would be hiring Hopefully, these people would have the ability and the technical skills, and most of them do, to be in those roles. And so you would hire them for that. What would happen then is that once they got hired, they would put it. I, there are certain jobs I took on because I, I, I wanted the opportunity, and I knew I was going to grow into the role. But some people take, and some folks, it takes longer to, to go into the role and the grooming themselves into the role. And in many of the times I've been in these spaces, it's taken a while for, for that to happen. And the last job I had uh, as an organizer in Alaska, there was a lot of roles that were put on me. Suddenly over time, I started seeing that my responsibilities were changing or the titles I was changing or what people would say I would be doing was changing. And ultimately, by the end, it was like no longer feeling that I was seen as this person who was an organizer, but more as this person who is like kind of overwhelmed and doing a lot of multiple different things. You never know sometimes if the job you're doing would have been better done with by somebody else or if they would have been able to split among other people or... But I, at the end, um, I was overwhelmed and was dealing with a lot of difficult things on the ground. I remember hearing that from someone and it's like that. In fact, I was put in this position that was very difficult to perform in. I mean, asked to come in two weeks before the end of the decline the sign campaign was over, you know, when there was very little been done when it comes to the field operations to be able to put that together. It was, it was difficult, mm-hmm. you know, and then to, so of trying to meet expectations that were very high to try and meet and in situations where it was going to be really difficult to perform and having a campaign that was going to be um, very broad, but then at the same time having to deal with the adjustments of moving to a new area, living within, uh, living in an area where there wasn't a lot of out transgender people, and then um, having to work with group dynamics that were also uh, sometimes very difficult and challenging. I found myself at the end, it was like, wow, uh, I had to leave. And I remember hearing from someone, so it's like, you know, I questioned, you know, whether we should hire a transgender person for this role. And so it's like, wow, wow. And so I think there's two things. I think there's transgender people who get put into roles that, uh, because they're looking for someone who's trans in that role, they get put in the roles that they may not be the best person or they bring more things to the table. And I think I think it's great when you want to hire transgender people to do transgender to work with the transgender community and transgender issues. I think that's great. But then at the same time, then it's like 
you put them in a position if you're if they're not prepared or don't have all the skills or if they're not ready for the dynamics that exist there, they're setting them up to fail. And so mm-hmm. it's really it's 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 hard. And um I always try to prepare myself the best I can. And I did a lot of my homework in advance and stuff like that. But that was my first ever um I mean I've done some campaign work before that, but it was my first ever where I was really like doing uh working on a campaign that was gonna be several thousand dollars and first time I ever uh, really, I mean, there was times on the campaign that I was targeted for being trans by people. And so there's a lot of stuff you had to put in your eight to 10 hours a day and then go home and then figure out, you know, know, sometimes 12 to 13 hours and then go home and just trying to piece yourself together to go do it the next day. When you say targeted, do you mean targeted for, well, I've had someone who, some people would come up to me and say, like, you know, that uh, we're going to come get you. People who would just say obscene things on the to me or threaten me with, you know, threaten my life. And is that something that was a new experience for you? Well, it's not necessarily, but it's like I've I've put I've been in a situation like that before. But to purposely put yourself in those situations, that was probably new to me. To put myself into a position where I was going to be targeted, to to know that. I was going to put my life on the line for other people. I had to talk and console um, people who were there with me that day who went home and cried. They just went home and cried because they knew that there were people who were being really hostile to them. And we, I could not provide the support that I needed to support them with. Because you were trying to take care of yourself? Trying to take care of myself. And I didn't have... I was, I put people in a situation where I didn't have all the supports in place to support them in doing that. So we, it's one of those things where it was a, uh, a rather conservative festival that we put people in. It was mainly a lots of local Republican folks who were talking about that transgender people, like transgender women were men. And that's not the case. So there were people who felt like they can be openly, they can openly talk about things and talk about transgender people in a negative way because it was being permitted in that space. So you have people there either trying to canvas or collect signatures or to you trying to, to to do these things and then at the same time having people saying nasty things to them and scaring them off and it's it's a difficult thing to have people to go through and, and when you're not prepared for that if you don't have like two people by two people and you know it's, I, I was very it was very fun to see the the papers there afterward for saying is the opposition took uh, says it's like activists were there and they were threatening us and I was just like wow that's it's like at least we did something at least, you know, but I don't know how much we did, but I felt really, I felt felt bad for the people who wanted to volunteer, take part, and found themselves targeted in the end, just trying to put it, trying to stand up to hate that existed out there. So what was the issue you were working in on? In Alaska, I was working on, I'm full of fun facts this, myself. This one was, I was the first organizer hired by the Fair Anchorage campaign, which was a, um, a campaign about protecting trans rights at the ballot. So transgender rights have not, trans rights have had been in the ballot beforehand, but never singled out. So this was the, this is an anti-trans ballot initiative. Alaska had passed, in Anchorage, Alaska, they had passed LGBT protections for transgender people. This was a, in Alaska, this was the first time that they, you know, they had passed it a couple of years beforehand and then they, the opposition tried to like reveal it, but they wouldn't let them repeal the whole thing. So you just picked out a section of it and they just decided we're going to repeal just the transgender rights of it. This had never happened anywhere else in the United States at all. So Alaska was the first place where they ever had to, 
this one is on the ballot. So transgender people had to be on the ballot. And it was only out transgender people. It wasn't lesbian, gays, and bisexuals with them. It was just trans people. And it was about uh, public accommodation, so access to places like locker rooms, restrooms, uh, restaurants, public spaces, any kind of places that were like deemed as public places where people should be able to have access to. And then there also, it was to uh, change the definition of sex. So it would just mean that sex was immutable, which means that the sex you are identified as birth is the sex that you are, you can't change it at all. So it was going to negate the existence of transgender people under Alaska, under municipal law. It was a uh, it was a rather nasty, threatening thing. And, I, and the, by the time I left, it was still maybe like another four months before the election was going to happen. But I had already, I was way too sick to continue working on it. And so that's when I got, it was a, it was a, a moment of humility where it was like my heart and my desire to continue doing the work was there, but my body physically couldn't do it anymore. I had been, been robbed. I had been sexually assaulted. I had been, I, my health was constantly getting worse and there was no way that I could have contributed the way I wanted to. And so I did what I could to put the pieces there together, um, help to build a community of transgender people to fight this bill. It was the largest mobilization of trans people, I think, in a campaign up to that point. And we focused on transgender people to try and fight this stuff. And then uh, I made recommendations of people who should be in these roles, and they end up winning. And so whenever trans rights have been before the ballot box, solely transgender people in both Anchorage and Massachusetts, they won. Transgender people win. So, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of changing the narrative where it was like, we have to be concerned about transgender people. We can't bring them along or be worried about them because, you know, we can't, you know, they're going to be a liability or something. It's just like, that's not the case. We can talk about transgender people and people are able to affirm and support us. The excuses people have about including transgender people or having transgender people there or, uh, you know, what are people going to say about this transgender person? Well, that stuff is kind of going away. The people who have that stuff are harboring, are basically harboring misconceptions and hate. Are you saying that, I guess, support, if you will, for transgender people is becoming more prevalent in our culture? Absolutely. Absolutely. In the past, it's it's been more of a case where it was a wedge issue and that the LGBT community didn't know how to talk about transgender people in a way that was going to, or was learning how to talk about it in a way that was going to be affirming. So I mean like that, it stopped a lot of like LGBT um, ordinances from being passed because if they try to pass an LGBT ordinance, they'd be like, well, then they would start talking about transgender people. And they didn't know how to talk about transgender people to the community because, A, because transgender rights had not been vetted the same way like same-sex marriage had for all those years. Uh-huh. And then secondly, you have a lot of organizations that are LGBT that don't have a lot of trans people. So they didn't uh-huh. have a lot of time talking about it. Now it's changed. Now it's changed. So Has there traditionally been some discrimination in the LGBTQ community or activism against transgender Transgender people? Well, there's been exclusions in the past, and people in the in the past have. Um, uh, I think one of the more notable ones was about 2007. There was a, a it, when when rights were trying to be passed at the legislature, you know, in, in Congress, it was usually the Employment on Discrimination Act. You know, there had gone through many iterations. Funny thing is, interest the closest it ever got to passage was in 1994, when it was dismissed by one vote. It was a, it missed, this is when Clinton was president and it missed by one vote. It was 
49 to 50, it went down. Senator Pryor of Arkansas said Senator David Pryor was not was not there. And, and I'm sorry, and that was for transgender rights? That was for LGBT rights across the board. Okay. So this was okay. like, so the Employment Non-Discrimination Act was an act that was being, for many years, um, LGBT people had tried to get comprehensive LGBT rights, like in, in employment, um, housing, at Congress. And get back to up to 2007, there was a decision at that time just to just to, to cut transgender people from the bill. That they weren't going to try going transgender people, they were going right. to try and do these other parts. And so, and it caused a big schism and separation. And it took a long time for everything to come back together. And until they realized it's like within the like the last eight years, the movement on LG, it was an LGBT movement was we're going to we're better off doing this stuff together. That we're not going to be dividing our people up to say you can get rights and you don't get rights. Right. That we're going to do it all together. And that's what's really changed. And so what's exciting now is now we've had these votes happen in Anchorage. Now these votes happen in Massachusetts that we can, we can do this stuff together. And now we can talk about it and we can talk to the public about it and the public can get behind it because now we are really focusing on these things, these areas where we had a difficulty at talking about it. Now we can talk about it and people are starting to see transgender people as equals and they can be equals within the LGBT movement and really amazing things can happen with that. There was, there has, it's been difficult to try and get, while there have been some passages of LGBT non-discrimination rights, it's been difficult to pass because if you can't talk about certain members of your community in a way that is affirming and effective and is able to reach the hearts and minds of people, then how are you going to win? So now it's getting to the point where um, these things have been vetted, these things have been tested. People are, people are going to Start to understand and see that these are people who live in your communities. These are people who who have families who want to serve their country. Other things like that. That the talk and conversations about transgender people are not becoming difficult anymore, and that we're seeing that we we, we will see more progress in LGBT rights going forward because of that. You know, it sounds a lot like white feminists who exclude women of color and LGBTQ women. It, it's almost like, oh, ladies, don't just. Hang on. Let us get the rights, and then we'll get to your problems, right? It, 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 what I it's, it changes when we talk about when we focus on the people who are the ones who are having the furthest to go. Because if we affirm the rights of people of color, so like when we talk about trans rights, I often you know the focus is often on the groups that are like trans women of color have higher instances of, of violence being faced. Um, higher instances they they. They make the majority, trans women of color make the majority of trans deaths in, uh, every year. There's been 25 trans deaths this year. Most of them are transgender women of color. Higher instances of, um, of, uh, of HIV, higher instances of being incarcerated, higher instances, all these other things that are happening there. If we focus on the people who have been most impacted, then ultimately it's going to help everybody out. If I affirm that person's life, then my life will ultimately become better because we're focusing on that person is still a transgender woman, that person is still a transgender person, you're still going to be impacted. So it's almost like if we help the most oppressed among us, that is only going to lift all tides, right? All mm-hmm. The tide will lift all boats. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that makes Absolutely. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then giving them the agency to be able to, to lead. I mean, that's the other thing, too. I will see, I think now... 
you know, I'm hoping that we'll see a lot more transgender people in positions of leadership. I know when I was, I had a director's position at a state level in the LGBT movement for a while. At the time, there wasn't a lot of other people who were like me who had a director's position. And knowing how many people who are, who are transgender, who are in positions of like leading organizations or doing grassroots efforts or knowing their community and having the knowledge doing this work, I was just like, wow, there's a lot more people who are doing the work, but they need to be in these positions where they're able to, to impact change and bring their expertise to try and change things. I, I, I want to see that now that it's become clear that we can talk about this and we can win and transgender people can be seen as equals in our societies or can be more closer to that and we're, we're winning Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, maybe we can get to positions where they're holding more power and agency within greater movements and even other movements. I'm spending a lot more time right now trying to diversify my background and understand other movements and understand how other groups work so then I can become better at the work that I do when I'm serving transgender people. Kind of back way up. And yeah, we can back up as far back as you want to. You're from Indiana, is that right? Well, my so I was born in um, born in Blue Island, Illinois. Illinois. Spent the first 13 years of my life living in the Chicago suburbs, the South Chicago suburbs, in in, the, in Illinois. And then uh, I my folks moved across the border. It was not that big of a drive, and so I I grew up south of Chicago for the first 18 years of my life, and then. I uh, went to uh, University of Evansville for my undergraduate and uh, studied uh, communications there. It was it was a fun time. I got to study abroad, and that was at the, that was the time when I started to really know that uh, become more aware and grow in knowing that I was actually LGBT, mm-hmm. knowing that I was you know came out as gay first, but then realized that I was trans later on, and and then. Uh, when did you first understand that you were gay or, that, well, what you identified as gay? I struggled with sexuality and gender at the same time. And How old were you? When I realized that these things were going on, I mean, probably I was aware of something maybe as early as age three or four years old. I mean, there are stories of uh, of me favoring more um, feminine gendered toys and things like that at an early age. Mm-hmm. And did but, your, how did your parents but, respond to that? Well, my folks were fine with it. They were more like, I think they were more concerned about what, what people and the neighbors would think about me. So, I mean, like I was really enamored with strawberry shortcake at an early age. And uh, I had like the strawberry shortcake shampoo and the strawberry shortcake vitamins. But I wanted the strawberry shortcake big whale. And my folks were like, <laughs> you should get the, the Smurf big wheel because they knew I wasn't going to go for the G.I. Joe one. Right. And so they said, like, Smurf is more very gender neutral. You should have this one. And so when I got that, when I drove around the bike and there were still neighbors who would say, you're raising your child to be a girl. I really appreciate that my my parents put an emphasis on, they they really pushed against the whole pink and blue gender. A lot more toys were becoming gendered coming in the 1980s. Um, right. And moving forward from that, and so they really focused more on like trying to be as gender neutral with me as possible. So I had Lincoln Logs and Discovery toys and a lot of building sets and um, Legos. I was really into those things, and it became very clear though when puberty hit that something was seriously wrong, and it really disrupted my life. And I became I was not able to really know how I can deal or talk with people about things, and so I became much more withdrawn. And what's interesting is like. When puberty hit, my peer group completely changed from being a lot of, I had a lot of friends who were boys to when puberty hit, all my 
friends kind of switched to, most of my friends switched to mainly women huh. in school. So it's like something, I knew something was on, how I was acting and treating people was going on, but I didn't know how to deal with it. I, I didn't know how to talk to other people about gender or what the feelings I was feeling. I was hoping someone else out there was like me, but I didn't, didn't know that person or didn't see that. So I was also kind of ashamed about talking about it. And so when was this? And when were you born? Born in 79. So. Okay. So eighties, nineties. Yeah. I'm going to be 40 next year. Sounds like your, your parents were pretty open-minded, but, but it still wasn't, it doesn't sound like my memory is so I graduated high school in 89. There weren't a lot of outlets for you. I mean, because no. there weren't transgender or LGBTQ people in the media, really. No, right? I mean, like, my folks knew of trans people. Like, they knew other people that were friends or somebody they knew that were trans. But if you got to look at the media, the media was mainly that transgender people were the punchline or transgender people were the people, like, just the fact that the person was trans was seen as funny. Yeah, you got the message of that, that they weren't really realized people, that these weren't uh, folks that were, you know, living their lives and trying to figure things out. It was more about that. It was the joke. You know, as a person who was exploring these feelings, you know, I grew up just having a sense of like, wow, um, something was, you kind of got the message that, you know, if I'm that person, then I must not be someone who is, I'm being told I shouldn't want to be that person. What's really funny is that, like, there were things that I, certain things I watched I thought were very affirming to how I felt about myself. You ever watch, like, The Incredible Mr. Olympus with Don Knotts? No. As the, yeah, so there's, Don Knotts had a, did a Disney film in, like, this in the 60s where he was part live action, part animation. He had an aquarium store or something like that, and he, he said at one point he wishes he were a fish, and he got into a situation where he drowned and they turned into an animated fish afterwards. And I was just like, Wow, that was kind of like, for me as a kid, it was just like, that's so cool. I wish I were a fish. I wish I had that, I think. I wish I could be someone other than who I was. Mm-hmm. And I I really enjoyed, you know, movies that were like that. So like Incredible Mr. Limpet or like Switch with Ellen Barkin and Jimmy Smith. And I could go out and watch TV and I knew characters who were gay or queer and I had a sense of was like, well, that person must be family. And so there was some sense of feeling a close affinity to them that I would be like, oh, that's someone that's so cool. I want to be, think that that person might be someone I can relate to. You know, go ahead and watching like episodes of Hollywood Squares and seeing Charles Nelson Riley on it. This is like, okay, I, there's something about him that seems like I can relate to. Right. I can, you- I can see, I can see gayness. I can see queerness and on TV, and I think it's like, okay, there's something about that I can appreciate. Were you really consciously or actively considering these things, or are you just saying this in hindsight? I am. I was. I think there was affinity. I had an affinity. Like I can sense as a young um, queer kid that it was not out, but knew that I was different than the other kids, or sense mm-hmm. that there's something different. That there was things that can sense. I had a full awareness of queerness in the culture. As a young person, I I was um, aware of things that were seen as had an appreciation for things that were somewhat subversive to the social norms, like mm-hmm. to the gender norms. Having people like getting really into things like David Bowie when I was a teenager was kind of liberating. Right. You know, just having people like that that I could be able to watch or see is just like, it was exciting. I didn't know how to even feel about like glam rock of the 1980s, you know, didn't know how to feel about that. You know, it's like you have these men who are like uh, wearing long hair and and lipstick and outfits and are doing rock and you have people cheering them. It's just like, that's wild. Yeah, that um, was my era. 
yeah, I mean, like, that stuff is, like, for me, I seen as a young kid, I mean, that stuff is impressionable. But it was nothing that would tell me that I was wrong or different, but it just told me that there was maybe more space for me in the culture and that I wanted to be, so things like art, the arts and popular culture were very open spaces for me to feel, um, to explore things. I really found myself involved in the arts when I got in the high, in the high school. Mm-hmm. Arts were my outlets. I felt safe there. And but I, there were a lot of other people who were like me in those spaces. I managed to, to fight my way through and get through school, even though I was dealing with so much internal struggle. I can only describe it as the best I can describe this is like I knew who I was, but I couldn't openly feel like I can be myself. So I had to try and be somebody else. So it's almost as if like that everything that went through me had to go through multiple channels. So I was almost feeling like I was playing a role every single day because I couldn't be myself. So I had to think about how I was walking, how I was talking. I was was really repressing my own behavior and it was really limiting. And when I think back, I spent a lot of time in my 30s trying to have the life that I always wanted to have and to have the experiences I've always wanted to have. And I, I spent a lot of energy early in my life because I didn't have anybody to talk to about this. And I didn't know I didn't know who I can go to. It impacted decisions I made. It uh, Instead of doing things that I wanted to do, I did things that other people wanted me to do. I wanted to make sure that other people, I wanted to make my parents proud of me. And I only later on did I realize that they just really wanted to have their kid. I was this incredible, full of energy, happy, optimistic little kid. And I, when I realized that something was different about me, I closed up and I just really missed that kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to see this person who was more worried about what other people thought about them. And I deprived myself of a childhood I should have had. I also deprived my parents of having a child who was happy and could do all these amazing things too. And so, but they're so proud of me now. It's just really, it's really great where everything's gone. Came out to them when I was 30. Since then, this has been wonderful. And when you say came out, do you mean as gay or as, as transgender? As, as, as transgender. I came out to them as transgender. I was 30 years old. Did they know what you were struggling with? As you were going through it? I mean, you were, I guess, off at college and living your life, right? Well, yeah. I mean, like, they knew that there was something on, but just didn't know what it was. They knew that I was occupied with something. Um, they also knew I was very stressed. They also knew I was very anxious. They knew that something was going on. And that, that it's just like in any family that if someone is going through a hardship or a difficult thing and they don't know how to handle it, it really causes stress for the rest of the family. Mm-hmm. And so my stress was causing them stress. Um, my inability to, to feel comfortable with who I was and to, and to come out and then to have someone to talk to about this or being completely uncertain about what this was caused them also to feel um, the strain and the pressure from that. And uh, when I finally got to the point where I knew what it was and I could do something about it and I came out, when they finally found out about it, it was like, wow, that makes total sense. Uh Um, And it just lifted everything up. It was more about them like undoing a lot of the things in life that kept me who I was. Because in order to, it was an incredible amount of pressure I felt at all times that my insides were telling my, were telling me that it's like, no, this is not who you are. And so it's like, what do you have to do to put those things in pressure? And some people do different things to try and do, try and, keep them from actually living the life that they want to live. 
And I put a lot of different things in my life. I had people in my life. I took on jobs that were very difficult for me. And, you know, it's like if you have, if, if life is making you stressed, if you make other things in your life stressed, it's no longer about your life. It's about those things. And so then it's no, so you focus on those things. Then you know, I, I worked in newsrooms where I didn't have to think for myself. I was constantly thinking about the news and thinking about noise. And it was living in noisy newsrooms. I, you didn't think. And so it just took my mind off of what I was doing on the inside. And I was doing it inside myself and um, separated myself from people in my life because of just, it made it a lot easier. And had people in my life that had really affirmed me for who I was, it was like then peeling back the onion continually year after year after year after, or time after time until it was, we got left to the point at the end, it's just like, wow, all this was was really my gender. In the end, it's a big thing, but make it sound so simple. But yeah, but I mean, like there was a point in my life when people would look at me and say, "Like your life is really stressful. You should do these things. Why aren't you doing these things that you wanted to do?" And so that's why I became a cartographer, and that's why you know I just focused myself on those things, and I just got rid of all the other things in my life that were making myself my life stressful. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I got to the end, I realized I was still not happy. And all that was left was like, oh, my goodness, I have everything I've ever wanted in my life. But I'm so badly, I'm I'm not happy at all. And you know, mm-hmm. I feel miserable. I feel suicidal. I need to take care of this. And it was one of those moments where it's like it was either going to be like I either come out and I live my life openly as a woman or I in my life there. It's not a means to be dramatic, but I think there's a lot of folks who are, you know, who are trans who can relate to that, that it's like you come, you hit a crossroads where you get, you've gone along this road long enough that it's just too exhausting to continue going on any further. Mm. And did you find that once you did come out, was it a sense of, what took me so long? This isn't so bad. Or was it a... Yeah. Well, I was the last person invited to my own coming out party. What does that mean? I mean, mean, there was a lot of other people that were like, we knew something was up for a while, but we just didn't, you know, we didn't want to tell you. We wanted you to figure out on your own. We didn't want to, you know, so it's like, and I was like, yeah, you're probably right. You know, it's like, if you had told me, I probably would have, it probably would have reinforced, you know, me to be more like, no, I'm not that way, you know, and it was freeing. I lost a lot of weight. A lot of stress went away. A lot of phobias went away. For about 25 years, I had a serious fear of heights and it kind of disappeared overnight. Really? Things were... It, it, it was manifesting itself in other things. It, it sure. impacted me in other ways. So just this inability to try and deal with myself just showed up in other things. Mm-hmm. And it just went away. It's been incredible. And then having my folks being supportive, I was able to keep my job. And a lot of things that I thought people were going to do, people were telling me, it's like, You're, these things are going to happen. This thing's going to happen. People are preparing me for the worst. And it, those things didn't happen. How did your wife react? Because you were married when you came out, right? Yeah, yeah. She was initially supportive. And then I kind of got the realization that she married who that person was and she didn't marry me. And it was more of a loving thing to let her go. Mm-hmm. So we had to decide later on that it was not going to work out. Her life and her position and her goals didn't fit with mine and that we needed to split. I think it's a... It was a, a big thing to just to be able to say if you have to love someone enough to keep them in your life, but also like, oh, no, that is something from life people didn't sign up for. You know, mm-hmm. you, you people sign up for like, do you love this person in good and bad times, sickness and health, all these other things. It's like, yeah, but they don't expect that person to change as much as I did. Mm-hmm. 
And so we ended up having to split up. You said that you initially came out as gay. Was yeah. that before you met her? How did you reconcile marrying a woman with being gay? Uh, <laughs> well, obviously yeah. you didn't. Well, I mean, when you're dealing with both the gender and the sexuality things at time, you realize that if you come out as gay, you realize that something else was not there. It was more of a case where coming out as gay was not what it really was. There was like, I had to tackle the gender part first. You realize that it's like, why am I come out as gay and still something's missing? That's why I was, that's why I dealt with. It's just like, it wasn't about who I wanted to go to bed with as who I wanted to go to bed as. And it changed. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. It was just like, you know, it's like, why am I coming out as, as this one? And there's still something they're dealing, I'm dealing with. And in the culture, in the culture at the time, we remember a lot more talk about being gay. And so talking about being trans was not something I was comfortable or didn't even know that it really existed at the time. I mean, I didn't learn the word transgender until I was about 18. And I came out, I was more open with my sexuality before I was 18. When you realize that, okay, well, I'm still not, there's still something not right. Then did you decide, okay, well, I must not be gay. It's something Yeah, it, it, was, it was just what, that's what it was. It was just like that. I had come in and come out of different things because I didn't know, A, I didn't know how to talk about it with other people. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a guide about how to talk about being trans, but also then it was, it was coming in and out of the thing that's like that. I didn't know how to talk about it, but also it was something that, you know, I didn't have the language for either. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know how to explain it to people. For me, at the time, I was comfortable and happy living with some, I was happy living with a woman. You know, now I identify as bisexual, I've dated men, I've dated women, but something I don't often talk about, you know, the trans thing, being transgender is primary and core, right? And uh, it's part of my everyday identity and I can't, I can't change that. But at the time I was still, it was still not because, because of that, I just didn't know how to, I tried the best I could to try and know what my life felt like. I wasn't concealing or hiding anything. It was more like, this is what I had the language for. This is what I understood. I mean, it's still grave no matter what, when someone comes out as trans, but back then it would have been very difficult and I didn't even know, I didn't even have the support in place for the, for the therapist or the other people in life to try and help me kind of figure out those feelings. I didn't get the, it didn't get that in place until later on. So life had to still go on. So you are a bisexual transgendered woman. Right. Yes. I'm, I'm a transgender woman who happens to be bisexual. Yes. You know, or I'm just a woman. So deep down, it's still just being a woman. And I made a decision years ago that I wanted to become an activist and that it was exhausting to, you know, it's one thing to be in the closet as being a transgender woman and not before transition and to come out afterwards and then to try and conceal or come up with some other history for myself was too much for me to ask for myself. And so I decided... It was better just for me to be open about it, and it changed everything. Because there are there are people who want to transition, and they want to identify mainly as a woman. After, as a, they want to identify as a woman or the gender that they transition into, and they don't. They see that being transgender is part of the process. So once they finish their transition, they're no longer transgender. And it's just like, well, mm-hmm. for me, it's just like I think I'm when I say that I'm a transgender woman, I'm I'm owning the fact that. I had to go through a massive change in my life, and there were all these other things that happened at that time. So when I say that I'm a transgender woman, I'm honoring the person who I was. I'm honoring some of the things that happened in my life. I'm honoring 
the mistakes, the good times, the bad times. I'm honoring a lot of things. I honored this this journey I went on. I'm also, at the same time, openly happy and celebrating that it's a great thing to be who I am, and it's a blessing. I wouldn't want to wish it on, on anybody. But it's, there's no other way I can live. I'd rather want to live. So even even at the place you are now in your life where you feel comfortable and happy, certainly relative to when you were younger, you still would not wish your well the, the way you exist. It's a it's a difficult life. It's a difficult life, and I um I think it's more that it's not that I wouldn't want to wish it. I think it's I think there's still a long way our society needs to go. Right. You know, it's it's that there are still people who are coming out as trans who are dealing with family members who are not supportive and dealing with hostility at home and um, confronting people who don't understand and who are who have very deep up views, you know, are trying to navigate school and life and are dealing with being disowned by their parents and things like that. And, you know, LGBT people don't often, they don't go, they don't often come from LGBT families. You know, in many other many situations, or if someone gets is born to a family, that family has anything to identify with that other child. But you know, you have a kid who comes out as trans, and are in a household that doesn't have that, and may be very conservative in their ideology. It's really difficult for that person then to live that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I just hit the lottery that I end up having the family parents that I had. If I was in a certain different situation, it would be really, really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. The strength and the power of our young people who are trans to come out in these situations, sometimes in rural communities, sometimes in very conservative households, you know, in circumstances at school where they're dealing with people who don't understand having parents targeting them. Right. You know, it's really amazing to see that see these kids who are growing up into being resilient. And so it's a very empowering thing. I only say that it's, I, I wouldn't wish it because it's, it's we still have a long way to go. We want to get to a point where... It just shows that our culture is still, when we're having the conversation, we're winning in many ways. But at the same time, we have to be realistic that we don't want to see people get hurt. And we want to see people living open and affirming lives. And we're not yet to a point where I can, you know, the transgender people are living completely open and affirming lives. Or in places where they can be completely safe. Right, kind of normalizing it. We have a lot more work to do. And that's, that's, that's that. I wouldn't want to be any other way. Right. Because this is who I am. So, yeah. Yes. I met you after you had transitioned. And what does it mean to transition? I guess it means different things for different people because some people have gender, I think it's called gender reassignment surgery. Is that right? Well, there's different things. I mean, and then so, some people it's just in the dress. So everybody has different types. There's like three different kind of components to transition. There's the legal transition, there's the medical transition, and there's the social transition. Mm-hmm. And everybody is going to go through different versions of either one of them. Sometimes just all three, you know, sometimes all three, sometimes just one or two, or sometimes just one of them. You know, for some people, they may be trans and they just say, it's like, I'm just going to maybe change my appearance with my gender presentation and my gender expression. I'm going to go out and I may change my name a little bit, or I might want to go by different pronouns, but that's that. And then there's some people who um, may want to have some form of, uh, uh, may want to take hormones, may want to pursue some form of surgery. And that all of them, uh, all trans people do. And then, mm-hmm. and some people would want to go through some legal, like changing, going the process of changing their name, uh, changing your gender marker on, on identification papers, other things like that. So mm-hmm. there's, there's three different components to it. And so, and it just varies from person to person. 
And then some people will transition and, you know, the language when it comes to the language around transition is it's from one gender to the to the gender to the to their target gender. So it's not necessarily to become from male to female or female to male. It could be female to non-binary, so someone who doesn't identify as either male or female or you know, someone who might be male to genderqueer, someone who may be more open in their um, gender expression, someone who may be more variant in their gender expressions. So some people want to be seen as, as like, I want to be seen as female, and that's, you know, be seen as a woman, that's one thing. And then they want to be, some people want to be seen as a man, and some people may want to be seen as neither, and that's, that's just great. There's just so many different ways that people want to see and affirm what their gender is. And what does non-binary mean? Non-binary means that it's it's rejecting what the binary is. So the binary would be like this idea of gender norms, gender behaviors, and so it's non-binary would be that you you identify as a gender that is outside the realm of male or female. For some people that might be androgynous, some people that might just be that in more gender neutral. For some people that might not be that, they might have different things. They might change how their expression is at different points. You will see some people who may were um, you know, facial hair and, you know, and paint their nails, different things. It's more that this is who they identify with. This is who they know themselves in their heart to be. They don't see themselves as either male or female, so they identify as non-binary. And uh, we're seeing a lot more people, young people, the, the younger generation is a lot more people identifying uh, who are coming out as trans are identifying actually as non-binary. It's more open with expression. I have said that just as an intuition, not because I know, but I have I have said several times that I feel like young people are really rejecting the the roles, the gender roles, and the sexuality roles and relationship roles that we are trying to put on them. They're much more open to the idea of loving whoever it is they happen to fall in love with. I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, well, we're seeing that people are coming from households where that gender roles are already starting to dissipate. I mean, that the men, you know, are taking more responsibilities, taking doing caretaking. You have women who are taking more responsibilities, being, you know, bringing, being the breadwinner. And we see uh, all different types of things changing. And we see people, families come up with different dynamics and working as teams on things. And uh, you see more people who's coming from same-sex households and different varieties of households. And it's just like that. It's affirming of the families that we exist that exist. It's that when we say that, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman, that's not the reality for a lot of families. That's not a reality for people. So families are family definition, what families look like. Let's be more realistic about what families look like and the dynamics that families are really living in. And in that way, then you're starting to see that the goals that people live in are not necessarily as firm as they are. And you're seeing that people seem like, you know what, I don't see myself that way. I think it's great to see people see it's like, you know, I don't have to play this part anymore. I can be who I am and I can be myself and this is who I like to be and this is what I like to share with the world. And that's that's a good thing. I really, I agree with you. I have a, for disclosure, my gender marker, I live on, I live on my driver's license as an X. I don't have a male or a female gender marker on my driver's license. Why did you make that choice? I started to, as I was going further through my gender, exploring gender, that I really started to dislike how much binary was beholden to me. It's as if, like, you go shopping for shoes and you're looking in the women's department and you realize that those shoes don't fit. And then you actually start thinking to yourself, it's just like, clothes don't have any gender. Gender is what I put on them. 
it shouldn't really matter. And so it, it just it just showed a more of an enlightenment that I had about my gender. At one time, I was, I mean, I still am rather femme, but there was a time I was probably more femme than I was now. And there are times I like to move in between. And there's times that, you know, I like wearing boots and car hearts. And there's times I actually do like to dress up and mm-hmm. wear like, you know, um, heels and, and hose. And so like, it's, it's all in, in, in between. And, and at the same time, I also felt this, this feeling that it was nobody's business. Mm-hmm. That, you know, nowadays I just don't think that there is a a real right from the state to this, to this you know, what what determination do they have on my gender? What How important is this for them in their decision? They really, they have no reason to regulate my gender. So I was like, okay. So I, I did it as a point also as to say that uh, my gender is my business and doesn't necessarily need to be in a driver's license. So I'd rather not be disclosed what my gender is because that's a very personal thing. I wanted to have it be an act instead until the day when it's no longer being listed. So why do you think it's so important to us that we are able to identify people in this way? It's a natural innate thing that people want to look at things and be able to name it or call it or do something to it, you know? Right. You know, that's- it's just... That's the thing. It's just like that we look at something and we say, like, we want to be able to say that's what it is. And when people who are really certain that they want to, they function that way when they want to be able to identify something or are unable to identify something that way, it's seen as somewhat threatening. It's that's, that's how I gather it. Mm-hmm. That if I see something that I can't explain or that threatens my own identity, then I will feel, you know, then I will feel threatened and I will be feel hostile towards it. And mm-hmm. so that's my sense about it. When someone is traverse or, or is going beyond the gender norms to so be something else, it can be threatening to people. It's, but I think it also shows that like how much gender is is a social construct, right? Because if we have to have the products that are targeted to a certain gender and and we have to feel positive about our gender and have these, all these different things that are related to our gender. If those things went away, how would people actually feel about it? I don't know. So, I, mean, I think about it and I'm, you know, I'm cisgender, straight, whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. aside from being a woman, I don't, I don't feel like there's anything, well, maybe not religious. There might be a couple of things, but I don't care. Like, I don't care how you identify. And when I say I don't care, it means it doesn't matter. But I always feel a need to be able to, I guess it's just all about framing because we just naturally frame things. And so I want to be able to kind of put people in those boxes. Oh, well, I met Andrea here and she's that person and she's an activist. I don't think about my other friends and think, oh, well, they're straight. I don't even know how to mm-hmm. talk about it. Like, it doesn't matter to me, but at the same time, I still feel a need to know who these people are. So like Penelope, for example, you know, I refer to Penelope as a she, but she's not super feminine to me, you know, and, and I have because, never... That's because Penelope wants to be affirmed in that way. It's a what sign of respect. It's a sign of respect, you know, when people, you want to be called what you want to be called. Right. And it's necessarily that it's... The pronoun doesn't necessarily. There are people who are are butch and are don't identify as anything feminine, but still go by by she pronouns. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily. One is. I think that's more of a thing of um, affirming um, of, of respect. It's more of a thing of respect. And then right. That's, that's where it comes. It's what it comes down to. It's not necessarily saying that you're femme or you're butch or you're masculine or feminine. I, yeah. Right. I think what you're saying. 
Yeah, and I guess I guess what bothers me is that I feel compelled to identify people in certain ways or, or know how to identify them when it really doesn't ultimately matter in, well, yeah. in my relationship with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I feel like uh, there's an additional pressure on the South when you want to talk about, like, um, saying sir or ma'am to somebody. Oh, sure. That yeah. is a sense of, of uh, I want to be polite to that person, but... I can totally tell those times when I'm talking to someone and they feel very uncomfortable when they're supposed to saying sir or ma'am and they don't have one to affirm of me if they if they are sensing something different. And most times I get ma'am. Majority of the time I get ma'am. But it's kind of like it's interesting to see sometimes when people are like, I don't know what to say. Yeah, and, and, and we don't want to feel rude. And they're feeling they're feeling threatened and offended by that one. It should be actually me who's feeling threatened or affirmed on that. It should be about the person you're receiving, not necessarily the person who's giving. Right, but if I don't know how to address someone, I feel it, uncomfortable because I don't want to offend them. But right. I also don't want to say, uh, what what are you? Or you know, how should I? Because you think them? that these things sound impolite. It's just like yes, and yes. I don't want to offend them by even asking them. Yeah, unlike unless you were you gave it equally or asked people equally at all different times, it would feel like you're singling that person out. Right. So what do I do in that situation? I often side on the point is just like that I normally ask people mm-hmm. and you and make that you make that a common thing. So it's like when we only target when we only ask transgender people about their gender, then we're kind of enforcing a society that that's used transfer people as being different or othered. So when you, you're you able to equally share, and this is how I'm going to talk to everybody, then it's no longer that way. And I even would cite even more towards if I can't use pronouns, I'll just use uh, the person's name. Mm-hmm. And asking the person's name is usually a good thing. But the South has at least gave us one of the greatest gender-neutral terms of all is y'all. And y'all. I love y'all and I use y'all all the time and I think y'all is becoming a lot more of a, it's it's not just a southern thing, it's more of a national thing now. People are using y'all more. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And, and I don't run into this very often, but usually when I do, I'll just, I'm not a big sir or ma'am person because I didn't grow up here, but, you know, I just try to avoid it or let them come out to me <laughs> in some way, you know, and then I'm like, okay, all right. And then for me, it's like, I I think for me, it depends on the type of, it's the, where I'm at, you know? So if I'm in certain cultures or certain areas where I know that there's this this sign of respect that comes with it, I'm going to use it more. Um, I will admit, in the middle of my transition, and I was working on my voice more and working how I was going to be treated and seen and stuff like that, I would go to Chick-fil-A because I know that Chick-fil-A in the drive-thru and test my voice through the drive-thru lane. Because I know that if I went through Chick-fil-A, then I they would say, sir or ma'am to me. Mm-hmm. And then they weren't going to get angry with me. I've had, I went through some drive-thru lanes where they were pointed at me or, or making fun of me or things like that. But I knew they wouldn't do it in a Chick-fil-A line. It would be somewhat respectful at all times. I would order my food at Chick-fil-A, go through, and then they would say, like, and I would just figure out, am I getting more getting more mams this time, or am I still getting third? <laughs> and uh, once that started happening more, that it was more ma'am, then I stopped going to Chick-fil-A, and I really haven't gone since. So it's been... Uh, <laughs> That's interesting. So I, you use I have, them. 
I used them. I used them for the purposes of my transition, and that was um, I get to atone for that one. That's perfectly fine. I think I did use it for a good purpose. Oh, I. I think yeah. it's delicious. I, I think it, the whole situation is I've never eaten at a Chick-fil-A, so I don't mean it's delicious in taste. I mean, how you used it, I think, is yeah. wonderful. I am late for my Sunday dinner at my mother-in-law's house, but I feel like we haven't covered everything. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's go ahead and we'll do a call, too. And I might even do your podcast in two parts. There's yeah. just so much that I want to talk about. And we did indeed record a part two. So go ahead and listen to it now or save it for later. Thank you very much to Andrea Zekas and to Daryl Sean and to all of the wine distributors who are lining up to give me some wine to drink so that I can produce a better podcast. 